We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, April 25th, 2022, as we bring you a new episode. Last Monday, our spirits were high. Despite losing on Easter to Tampa Bay, the White Sox were 6-3. We were positive about this team's level of play, winning tough games against the Rays, but also understanding that luck was maybe on the White Sox side. However, with a planned 10-game stretch facing American League Central divisional opponents in Cleveland, Minnesota, and Kansas City, the White Sox were in a position early to pad ground between them and everyone else in the division. After two days of rain in Cleveland, the good spirits are gone with the White Sox. They have now lost seven straight games, their longest losing streak since 2019, and they are now 6-9. and nine. The Minnesota Twins, thanks to Byron Buxton's big weekend, currently lead the American League Central with an 8-8 eight and eight record. Yes, the White Sox started 2021 poorly too, but that team was 7-8 and eight last year at this same point, and 3-3 three and three against the American League Central. Presently, the White Sox are 2-7 and seven against the American League Central, and the schedule doesn't get any easier. Next is Kansas City, who won the season series against the White Sox last year, then a 30-game stretch facing the Angels, Yankees, Red Sox, Blue Jays, Rays, Dodgers, Cubs, and more division games against the Guardians and Royals. The White Sox have dug themselves a hole, and we are going to break down the specifics of of what's ailing this team and what they have to do to get back on track. There is some good news and a silver lining to hang on to, but it's early is going to go away fast if this team does not pick up their play. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And Jim, last week I asked you, how are the White Sox doing it by starting 6-3? and three? You said it was mostly good luck and fortune. Now at 6-9, and nine, we got this question from one of our Patreon supporters, Andrew Siegel. Are the White Sox having a bad streak, or are they broken? I think 
It's a little bit of both. Um, you know, obviously when it comes to Eloy Jimenez, he's literally broken uh, with a um, you know, hamstring strain slash tear. That's going to cost him six to eight weeks if he's lucky uh, because sometimes those initial, initial uh, prognoses are wrong when it comes to uh, determining the severity of a strain slash tear, like a severe strain. So he's broken. I think generally speaking, you know, going back to our discussion previewing the Cleveland series, I mentioned and we, and we talked about that this Cleveland team was very Clevelandy, <laughs> and by very Clevelandy, meant designed to frustrate the White Sox or maybe poke at some weaknesses. With, uh, you know, they're they're when it was a four game series, they were starting four command oriented right handed starters, uh, and generally those guys have given the White Sox fits, whether they throw ninety nine or whether they throw ninety three. The lineup is modular and can make a lot of contact, so the White Sox can't get by with strikeouts alone. So whether it's you know a little bit more resourceful pitching or better defense, they would have to make sure that uh, they stay on their toes there. And so what happened this series? Right-handed pitching shut down the White Sox, and then the you know defense uh, collapsed. And same thing with you know the Twins not uh, was a notch down when it came to difficulty. Like Bailey Ober is not Shane Bieber, uh, but Kind of the same skill sets, uh, command-oriented righty throwing in the low 90s with a slider that he can throw for strikes and you know kind of shape a couple different ways and add and subtract from it, and that gave the White Sox fits, and you know their defense continued to struggle. Um, even like Chris Archer, they had good swings against him, uh, but it was you know th- they didn't materialize in anything. They still haven't had a crooked number. They, they tried and another runner got cut down at the plate. So there are some weaknesses that uh, the, the Guardians and Twins were able to poke at uh, over the course of the week, uh, over the course of the, the 0-6. And they are fears or weaknesses that I think a lot of people acknowledge going into the season. And, and the reason why people felt a little bit uncertain about just the lack of inactivity and in, in, in the the absence of one uh, roster-shaking move that uh, really turned the calendar over from one year to another. We did get another question from one of our Patreon supporters. Lots, lots of questions from yeah. White Sox fans. A lot of pleas. Uh, Mark Hope wrote to us, Jim, good teams go through bad stretches. And going into this season, we knew this team was it going to be a 100-win juggernaut? But has the last week exposed any weaknesses that were overlooked or underemphasized going into the season that could potentially threaten the whole season? And Mark, I'm glad that you asked this because, Jim, I, I wrote down four problems with the White Sox right now. And it is, I have one for each of the segments of the team. The offense, the defense, the starting pitching, the bullpen, and even the manager as well, which we'll get into Tony Larusa. So the four parts of the team and then the manager. So I guess you could call it five parts. Let's talk about the right-handed pitching, the offensive woes first. This is the White Sox kryptonite. This is where I get annoyed with Rick Hahn, Jim. After the mm-hmm. Oakland series, what did we say? The White Sox have troubles against right-handed pitching. They need more left-handed bats. He didn't address it. 2021, during the season, the White Sox are struggling against right-handed pitching. They need a left-handed impact bat. He gets Cesar Hernandez. Hernandez does not help with that. After the postseason, mm-hmm. when it was very clear against Houston's right-handed pitching, the White Sox could not muster enough extra base hits to overcome the Astros' offense. 
we said the White Sox need to address this. Rick Khan did not until April 1st by acquiring a right-handed hitter, A.J. Pollock, who does pretty well against right-handed pitching. For whatever reason, Rick Khan has disagreed with us that this is not a top concern for the White Sox. Right now, as a team, the White Sox are batting 196 with a 247 on base percentage, and they are slugging 312 against right-handed pitching. That's a 559 OPS. That is the second worst in Major League Baseball, and only the Cincinnati Reds are worse than the White Sox against right-handed pitching, and the Reds are the worst team in Major League Baseball. The White Sox have a 229 batting average in balls in play against right-handed pitching, Jim. So even if you look at that number and say, well, regression must be coming, mm-hmm. if it is coming, hopefully it's coming from Yasmani Grandal, who's got one walk to eight strikeouts against righty starters. And he's got an OPS below 400 against right-handed pitching. Lurie Garcia's batting .086, so let's not even entertain the fact that he can help address that area. And Gavin Sheets has got a good batting average and on-base percentage, but he only has two extra base hits right now against right-handed pitching. And righties, except, you know, Tim Anderson, maybe it sparks a turnaround against righties, but Anderson's only hitting .225 against righties. Uh, he finally hit his first home run off a right-handed pitcher. Abreu's struggling against righties, and Luis Robert is batting 182, 206, 303 against right-handed pitching. We know this is the kryptonite for the White Sox. Is it as simple as saying, yes, Josh, regression is coming, because look at the batting average and balls in play, or is the kryptonite a lot stronger for this particular White Sox team than the past two years? I think it's stronger now that Jimenez is out for six to eight weeks. I think, you know, a lot of the um, in-house improvements uh, for the White Sox was uh, based on Jimenez being healthy for most of a season and Yohan Makata being around and having that left-handed bat. And so far, Makata has not played and there's no real timetable for him to return and uh, Jimenez is out. Uh, and he's looked off balance, uh, kind of in the batter's box, using a lot of different stances, not looking comfortable, perhaps because of the foul ball off the ankle. So even before the uh, the big injury, there is a smaller injury holding him back. So, you know, without those guys providing that kind of in-house improvement, it does, you know, make it a bit scarier to say that, uh, you know, Andrew Vaughn swinging the bat better. You know, the, he looks like he's comfortable against right. He's taking some really confident mm-hmm. hacks, and Anderson's been good. And I think a lot of the White Sox offense relies on Anderson and Robert making the game look simple. Um, you know, when they're getting on base, when they're you know making loud contact, no matter the pitcher, uh, the lineup looks a lot more dynamic and functional, and they're taking bases by themselves, and it looks great. And when Robert's uh, getting bombarded with breaking balls, and he's not quite adjusting quickly enough because he's still relatively new to the major league level, uh, the offense dries up a little bit. So take uh, Jimenez out of the equation and keep Moncada out of it, and there's not a whole lot of backup. So I think right now the struggles against right-hand pitching is pretty acute and if Jimenez isn't back or if he comes back like he did from the uh, ruptured pectoral tendon and you know looks you know like he's still rusty or not quite 100 percent and just kind of struggles uh, scuffles the same way that he did last year it's it's a case where okay you can't count on him and this kind of goes back to um yeah like 
we talked about you know plenty over the winter. I kept bringing it up, and people were unhappy with me talking about trading uh, Aloy Jimenez. And the reason I kept bringing it up was saying, well, you know, just the White Sox are right-handed. He's uh, you know he gets hurt a lot. He's he's kind of clumsy. Like he, he, as he filled out uh, physically, because you know he, he, watching him in the Futures game when he was like 21 years old making plays in the outfield, like he's a bigger guy. He's just a broader. Uh, player out there and it looks like since he got bigger he just doesn't control his body the same way and he's gotten hurt in a lot of weird uh ways that just suggest a, a, a graceful lack of body control and, and so you know i kind of floated out there saying well you know there's a chance that he struggles to put it together and if he's not adding defense and you know he's susceptible to just hitting ground balls like maybe this is the time to try to diversify the offense a little bit and trade them. And, and it was an unpopular idea, but uh, the reason I kept floating it was this fear um, of just, you know, having another year where you go to the end of the year and just say, well, he had a serious injury. Maybe next year is the one he puts it together. And, you know, we, when we talked about Jimenez and we were both kind of bullish on him, you know, my, my sentiment was if not now, then when, mm -hmm. and so if it's not now, because <laughs> you can, you can say that exact question now, but just with a different tone. If not now, then when? And he gets more expensive, and now he's going to be making, you know, twenty-three million over the next two years. So he has to solve a problem now. He's not any longer like a cost-controlled player who's in a bargain no matter what he does. So that was my my thought when I floated the trades for him, and now that that's kind of uh, materializing here. So, um, you know, when when talking about just what the White Sox haven't done, part of it's just you know uh, Rick Hahn not being a terribly transactional GM. And, you know, when we, when we watch this roster being built and just kind of getting gradually more expensive and he just decided bullpen and utility guys, like, like I said, the, the lack of a roster transforming or roster shaking acquisition that, that, that signal that this team was different uh, from last year. Like even like the Craig Kimbrell trade, it was nice that, yeah, you know, even though Pollock struggled and he got hurt, like I still think it was a good idea uh, to trade for AJ Pollock. But the the question is, you know, during that time where Rick Hahn had invested over fifty million dollars in the bullpen before trading Kimbrel, just like that sixteen million could have been spent elsewhere. Like you know, he kind of turned into somebody had a trade. He had to result to the bartering system to try to get fair value and shake up the roster. But he would have been better off just having that sixteen million to allocate as he pleased. So that's, I, I think, you know, when you look at what, you know, the White Sox did to maybe paint themselves in the corners, you know, part of it's these cost-controlled contracts that look good in isolation, but add up to an expensive roster that you might feel too attached to when you need to maybe back out of a corner. Uh, in this case, you know, two right-handed, two ground balls, a little bit more defensive versatility. But then also just the bullpen and utility guys. Like, I think the other fear that's being materialized right now is spending $11 million on Josh Harrison and Larry Garcia combined uh, and, and not solving a problem with that $11 million. Yeah. So I think, you know, there are some, some issues that are just bad luck, but they're also like, I think some of the decisions made exacerbated the, the problems that the White Sox, their misfortune has forced them to encounter early on. Maybe Rick Hahn's just not good at free agency, Jim. No, I think it's a, a case where it's, you know, partially free agency, partially major league scouting, but also, you know, there is a chance that like, it's a, uh, a big picture thing. Like he's good at trades, but when it comes to like finishing off a team or, you know, 
uh, divorcing emotions from players that you invested like a Chris Sale in, or a you know Jose Quintana in, or you know the, these uh, you know the, these these watershed trades, and just you know afraid that you're not going to see the best from these guys, so you just hold on to them until it's too late. Um, you know we saw that happen with Gordon Beckham's career, for instance, like just kept you know, 2000 plate appearances and then bringing him back in a bench roll. And then he had <laughs> attached or yeah, he had to, uh, you know, just basically just confirm, uh, with all due diligence and then some that he wasn't really a major league starting infielder. And I think they're just, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's Rick Hahn, whether it's, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf, I think some people ascribe that to him, just some decisions being made that he does, you know, like, we've been saying this for a couple of years, like it would benefit him to be a little bit more transactional so that if one trader signing doesn't go well, it doesn't stink so much. Like there's enough airflow with the different moves being made to where you don't fixate on one move that went wrong because that was the only move made. Again, this has not been a new problem. We have spent hours, Jim, we've spent hours on our shows talking about the fact that the white Sox really struggle against right-handed pitching and they are very struggling mm-hmm. against right-handed pitching to start the season. And it's not like they're facing elite right-handed starters, as you pointed out. Dylan Bundy's throwing great to start the season, but he doesn't have premium stuff anymore. Chris Archer's lost his premium stuff. Bailey Ober doesn't have premium stuff. Shane Bieber's throwing 90. So they're not facing the Garrett Coles of Major League Baseball and getting owned. And I don't know... Other than regression to the mean when it comes to to the BABUP against right-handed pitching, but that is an area that they sorely need to improve upon. They need to have a better plan of attack and start getting better results against right-handed pitching, or this is their kryptonite, and it can prevent the White Sox from achieving the goals that they want to achieve in 2022. Moving over to the defense. Two more errors Friday night that cost them the game. Graveman's throwing error on Sunday almost lost them the game. They lead the majors in airs. I, I don't know how worthy infield practice is on a major league level before games. I know the White Sox have been taking infield. It's just, we knew that, well, we talked about it not that long ago that we thought the White Sox defensively were better than what we thought. But this week, mm-hmm. total collapse. And it starts with Tim Anderson. And that's where it's got to improve in my book. We got to see clean games from Tim Anderson and we need to start seeing some clean games defensively from the White Sox. The starting pitching is just a minor thing. The White Sox are going to have to make do with Vince Velasquez at Dallas Keuchel until Johnny Cueto, which we'll talk about him later in the show and Lance Lynn join the staff. Lucas Giolito looked great on Sunday. Giolito cease Kopech. That's a very strong three. The bullpen. Another reason to be really annoyed with Rick Hahn, Jim. The mm-hmm. super bullpen is not that super. And I am sorry, Aaron Bummer, Kendall Grayman, and Liam Hendricks should be able to hold a two-run lead. Mm-hmm. And before we even get to the decision-making on Sunday, I don't think it's that big of an ask. And Aaron Bummer, we talked about it in last week's episode for the Patreon bonus P.O. Sox questions. And for those that are not Patreon supporters, we talked about how Aaron Bummer has not repeated his release point with the sinker and the sinkers a broken pitch and it continues to be a broken pitch and Byron Buxton hit it for a two run homer to tie the game. Aaron Bummer is not dependable right now. Kendall Graveman's not invincible. Liam Hendricks is having a bad month. 
Right now, the most dependable bullpen arms for the White Sox are Tanner Banks and maybe Ronaldo Lopez and Jose Ruiz. So when you spend all this cash and resources to build this super bullpen and they can't hold a two-run lead, Mm -hmm. that's frustrating. And Joe Kelly's hurt too. So like Joe Kelly is another, you know, eight and a half million, I think, that's just not able to do anything right now. So uh, yeah, that's, you know, the... That's the cautionary tale from the Craig Kimbrell trade is that, you know, one, um, you know, Kimbrell's velocity was on the way down and he kept losing it. And, you know, whether you ascribe that to really complicated mechanics or ninth inning, whatever you want to like, whether it's uh, physical, mental, metaphysical, what have you. In the end, it didn't matter because Kimbrell didn't pitch meaningful innings like nobody pitched meaningful innings. Hendricks didn't pitch meaningful innings in the ALDS. Like when you invest that much in the bullpen and you solve a problem that way, mm-hmm. it's like, well, it's good until the offense doesn't give you a lead and the starting pitching can't hold it down enough. And then all of a sudden you have all these guys like Liam Hendricks doesn't pitch for four days because there, no games are getting to him. And, you know, Craig Kimbrell goes on, well, he, he was used in the ALDS, but in the, you know, non-critical situation. But just, you know, it's a case where when you invest that much in the bullpen, I think there are diminishing returns to where, like, are you sure these guys are going to get leads? They're going to need all of these guys. Uh, I guess the flip point, yeah, or flip side is that, like, you know, maybe you need all those guys because they're clinging tenaciously to one-run leads (laughs) through six innings every time uh, because the offense is topping out at three runs, four if they get ten innings to score four runs. So I think, you know, that's always been my concern with investing in the bullpen like this is just kind of building a team backwards. I know Hawk Harrelson would say that, you know, games are won in the bullpen. Uh, I, I think uh, games are lost with bullpens, but maybe not one, especially when, uh, you know, it's it's what, 11 days between scoring, uh, f- you know, four runs in a game. So that's, I think, really, uh, you know, really troubling. And then, you know, like I said, you know, it was even more extreme when Craig Kimbrell was still on the payroll. And I think that just limited a lot of mobility that Han had with the uh, payroll. And while it resulted in AJ Pollock, it's just another, you know, he's good. He's fine. He's a good use of Kimbrell, but he's also another injury plagued outfielder that now has two other ones, <laughs> Luis Robert and Aloy Jimenez. And they have all hurt themselves running to first base or rounding it in a routine manner. So, you know, that, you know, just when you invest 50 plus million in the bullpen at one point uh, and nobody else is close, you know, like like I said, it just it, it does strike me as a little bit of a lack of big picture and and, and not understand like, wait a second, I've spent 50 plus million on the bullpen and we still can't hit right handed pitching. We don't have reliable weapons against right handed pitching. Uh, a few things are still too reliant on hope or, you know, basically stay he- healthy. So, you know, what are we doing here? So I think that's really my, when, you know, criticizing Han at this point, like he, the rebuild trades are great, but just, it does seem like there is a disconnect with just how to finish this roster. And yeah, and the, the overinvestment in the bullpen would be questionable, even if they were holding leads, um, just because it's still a hard way to make a living for six months. So you know, when you watch them mm-hmm. lose leads like the way they had or the way they did on a Sunday, yeah, it's just that's that that's really doubly hurtful because not only are you when you lose with the strength that hurts twice. Yeah, and when it comes back to the starting pitching, there's a lot of White Sox fans that are looking at how well Carlos Rodon is throwing the ball for the San Francisco Giants, 
and they are very angry that the White Sox did not extend a qualifying offer or even take the route of bringing back Carlos Rodon more seriously in the offseason because they have to watch Vince Velasquez and we'll preview the upcoming series against the Royals. They're going to have to watch Dallas Keuchel on Tuesday rather than just having to watch one of them make starts and see Carlos Rodon continue. Looks like his dominance from 2021 that he has unlocked now and has now became someone that you have to take seriously when talking about the National League Cy Young Award in 2022. If he continues to pitch like this, that he is pitching like he did in the first half of 2021, which made him a front runner in the American League Cy Young conversation until he had some downtime because of injury and soreness. It kind of does circle back to Rick Hahn's D minus off season before unloading Craig Kimbrell for AJ Pollock. Mm-hmm. Maybe you make a really good point on the big picture and the lack of a big picture and the lack of the White Sox and Rick Hahn and the rest of the front office addressing the pain points that everyone, us, local, national media have been pointing out about this franchise for years. The fact that they continue to ignore <laughs> all of us to prove themselves right and slash prove ourselves wrong. Well, it is very clear in the first 15 games, and maybe this makes me insufferable. We are right. And the results are not lying. They're smacking you in the face right now. So those are the four things, Mark, that I am paying attention to. And the good news is, internally, this is on the players. And it is as simple as they got to look themselves in the mirror and they got to be better. They got to be better against right-handed pitching. They got to be better on defense. Starting pitching is just going to have to wait out until Lance Lynn returns. And the Super Bowl pen, they have to, they have to carry their weight. They are getting the big paychecks. There's no excuses. They have to perform better than what they have been. Now the fifth element, coaching. Mm -hmm. After 15 games, I'm seeing poor fundamentals, Jim. Lack of communication on the field. You brought up the base running. It's kind of embarrassing on the major league level when you're watching players on this team not being able to physically run down first base without holding your breath on a close play that their leg is going to explode off their body. Strategic, the lineup construction we talked about recently and we wrote about assigning playing time. You can pretty much hint at this with Andrew Vaughn's playing time and in-game decisions, which brings us one of the Patreon questions from our supporter Brent. And Brent asked us, was Tony La Russa asleep during Byron Buxton's 10th inning at bat? And we have LaRusso's quote here regarding the extra inning situation against the Minnesota Twins. LaRusso said, quote, yeah, there's an option of walking him. Pitched him tough, but the guy on deck, Luis Arias, is hitting 300 and he feasts on fastballs. You give a pitcher a chance to make a pitch. Hendricks tried to bounce a curveball. It created runners on second and third. It did as it bounced away from Yasmani Grandal. Anytime you load the bases, you better have a significant advantage with the guy on deck. Because you're playing right into his hands and the guy on deck is a tough out. We had a better chance to do what Giolito did to Buxton the first couple times up. End quote. Alec then wrote to us, why, just why, Jim? So <laughs> before I have an aneurysm and get really angry about Tony LaRusse's logic here, what do you make of LaRusse's decision making in Sunday's game with Byron Buxton at the bat? And how do you feel about the White Sox coaching staff 
and what has transpired in the first 15 games. Yeah, it's it's hard to know where to start just because there are a lot of ways you can attack it. I think, you know, I go back to the game against the Rays when they won 3-2 to two when you know, Tony LaRusso did the correct thing where Liam Hendricks fell behind 3-1 to G-Man Choi. Bad at bats, or, you know, bad situation. They had first base open. And so he called for the intentional walk because Hendricks, you know, he issued seven walks last season. Like, he does not want to walk anybody. He It's like a point of pride that he does not, you know, everybody has to hit their way on. But it does lead to situations where when his slider or curveball is not a threat to be a strike, uh, and it really hasn't been this year, like, you know, 3-1, you're getting a fastball. So in the case of Choi, who can hit a fastball, you know, Larusa said like, well, I don't like that matchup. So he just, you know, called for the walk and then Hendricks went on to uh, find a better matchup, won the game. Uh, in this case, it's slightly different because Buxton loaded the, would have loaded the bases with uh, one out. So it's just, it's not quite the same as uh, Choi having two outs and only having one batter after him. Uh, but still, I think the thought process is the same. Like, I don't mind, you know, it's just a bad situation, but... I would understand, given that Giolito struck out Buxton three times in the game and that he still has some swing and miss and that Hendricks is an elite strikeout pitcher, that I didn't mind Hendricks starting the at-bat against Buxton. Like, just, you know, giving it a shot, seeing if he can get some uh, chases early on, you know, throw a good slider that throws him for a loop, and then, you know, okay. Uh, But in the case of falling behind 3-1 when you know you're getting a fastball, and uh, is talking about Arias being a you know, great fastball hitter, you know, Buxton, he, you remember Andres uh, Munoz on Seattle? He threw that dominant inning was like throwing 101, 102. Yep. Buxton turned around his 101 at the letters and put it in the second deck at target field. Uh, yeah. I think it was yeah, a couple weeks ago. Wow. And like he can hit a fa- like he can turn around anything. So like you're talking about Arias being a fastball hitter, like Buxton's an elite fastball hitter. Like he's got bat speed for, uh, yeah, basically like, you know, his, his bat speed's probably like, you know, combined two or three, uh, you know, I would say like, you know, top college hitters, like he can just whip through, you know, whip the bat through the zone as good as anybody. So, you know, to, to ignore his fastball prowess for Arias is confusing until you realize that, you know, like one of the through lines is that, you know, and, and our, our complaints about you know, Larusa, the way he manages the White Sox is like, you know, we, we're, we're all aware of his fixation with Larry Garcia. And I'm going back to last year thinking about like when he had Garcia and Billy Hamilton bet for themselves because he was looking for a single. Yeah. Uh, when they did not need a single and they needed more. And they also need guys on base percentage to actually stand a better chance of keeping line moving. But he was like fixated on that looking for a single. And if he's pitching to Buxton because Arias is on deck, I think that's just like, for whatever reason, he has an unhealthy respect or fixation on slap hitters who can put the ball in play and might get a single. Like, I think he's wounded by that more than like a power hitter with maybe some strikeout tendencies uh, doing damage on a pitch he can damage. Like that's just, you know, to me trying to straighten it out and try to figure out like, why is, how is this a rationale? You know, he is a hall of famer baseball person. Like he is, you know, he is one of the greatest managers, if not the greatest manager of all time. So I don't want to say like he's stupid uh, because, you know, there's, there's gotta be more to it than that. If he's making the same mistake multiple times. And it is a case where just like, I think he just, you know, this is a case when you look at some of the things that have frustrated us on the White Sox end and then, you know, 
what he's managing around uh, from what the opposition has to offer. Like it does seem like he's wary of contact, you know, or like if, if there's a guy with a, uh, 24% strikeout rate and a 700 OPS or sorry, uh, uh, a 700 slugging percentage. And on deck, there's a guy with a 12% strikeout rate and a 375 slugging percentage. He's going to be more wary of the latter in a case where like one hit can hurt. Even if that, you know, the, the guy who's, you know, he's currently facing and the guy who can put the ball in the park is more likely to do damage. He just has maybe more at-bats that, you know, result in, you know, emptiness. But in the case of like Arias, like he just might put, he, he's a way better double three, uh, double play threat yep. than Buxton. Like there's no way to get two outs from Buxton's at-bat and you need to get two outs. You're going to have to face Arias somehow. So if you're really, I mean, that's, that's the dumb thing too. It's like, you know, it's not like he had a choice of avoiding a rise entirely. He would have to face him at some point. I would think that you'd rather face him when you have a chance to get two outs instead of one, like it, it, rather than needing to get two outs from Buxton. So that's the case. Yeah. It's just, it doesn't make much sense. And the only way I can make sense of it is that he just really is wounded when a contact hitter uh, makes contact in a productive way. So what would he have done if Hendricks struck out Buxton? Walked Arias to load the bases for Polanco? That's my guess. Because he would be, you know, with this train of logic, he's afraid of the contact guy making contact with runners on second and third and with the league's worst defense behind Liam Hendricks. I don't want him to beat us. Give me Jorge Polanco with the bases loaded. Like, there's no situation that I can think of that Hendricks is not pitching with the bases loaded and trying to get out of that situation. Yeah, unless he would just, you know, have Hendricks try to throw sliders, you know, b- bombard uh, Arias with breaking pitches and stuff and maybe not give him that vaunted fastball that he supposedly can damage. But yeah, it just, it, it doesn't it doesn't hold up to, to any kind of scrutiny. And that's why I think, you know, you saw Chuck Garfine, yeah. of all people, going off on La Russa after the game. Like, you know, and, and Chuck, you know, he tries to see the, the the bright side or defend personnel and management of everything. And like, you know, whether that's just his you know, standpoint or whether it's, you know, marching orders, you know, I I think there is a bit of, you know, just job pressure to try to, um, you know, market the team. And he is, he is a voice and face of the White Sox on TV. So I think, you know, there is probably some pressure, uh, you know, whether it's applied or just felt to try to make the team tolerable when they're not but when you see him going off on La Russa after the game that's I think new territory for frustration and uh James Fegan snuck in a line let me see if I can find it real quick talking like <laughs> he was uh his his initial summary of the winless road trip uh if you're a team that hired La Russa, it's his experience instincts and feel in these situations that you coveted and trust will work out more often than not even as the team hits its head several times in a row at the outset of the season if you're a fan and this is the this is the clause or even a team employee who doesn't trust his experience will translate to statistically optimal decisions <laughs> it's efficient it's inefficiencies in these moments that you fear could keep the Sox from reaching their world series ceiling. And just like, so it does seem like, you know, when these losses pile up that the, the voices of discontent could be getting louder somehow, whether it's, you know, Garfine up front, you know, in a public role or maybe just more back channel chatter. But yeah, it's, it's a case where if this does continue for longer, the, we, we could be seeing, uh, some cracks to a, to what has been a very united White Sox front office and media apparatus. 
I've never bought that the White Sox front office down into the clubhouse is united. Oh yeah, I mean like, when Rick Hahn used the passive voice. Yeah, they're not. <laughs> like, they're not united. We they're, do. They're not yeah. on the same page. They are rarely on the same page. We've been podcasting for nine years. We've been through everything, all of the ups and downs with this front office. They are rarely on the same page. There are some headbutting always going on. And I am sure Rick Hahn cannot be happy with Tony the Rooster right now. So out of all the five things that we pointed out, the kryptonite for the offense, right-handed pitching, the league's worst defense, starting pitching, having to continue with Dallas Keuchel and Vince Velasquez, until Lance Lynn returns. The Super Bullpen not living up to their bargain. And Tony La Russa, out of those five, Jim, the only area where I have no hope that it will improve during the season is La Russa. Because he believes, Jim, he's making the right decisions. Even with your train of thought and breaking it down, even if you sat down with him, person to person, and you walk through all of those options, he still believes he made the right decision. And we have to now question the baseball acumen of a Hall of Fame manager that has multiple World Series titles, even though those titles were more than a decade ago. There's far, far too much faith and confidence in below average players from La Russa, and just not wise decision-making. Because this week it was Bayard Buxton... Mm-hmm. Past weekends, it's been Jose Ramirez. Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll be Salvador Perez this upcoming series against the Kansas City Royals with the game <laughs> to on the Patrick line. Patrick Chagrin. Everything else for the White Sox are internal problems, and that's the silver lining in all of this terrible start for them or this terrible week. Mm-hmm. The White Sox are beating themselves up. Nobody that they have played has demonstrated they are head and shoulders better than the White Sox. Yes, Byron Buxton and Jose Ramirez are American League MVP candidates, but Cleveland and Minnesota have also some glaring weaknesses. The White Sox have created this mess. They have dug themselves this hole. Despite the injuries, I still think they've got enough talent to climb themselves out. Do you have that same sense of feeling when it comes to this White Sox team? Yeah, I, when you were talking about like which one you thought would be... Uh you know, most pervasive. I thought you're going to go with a slightly different angle in terms of which one will have the biggest impact, um, you know, from here on out. Like I would say like Larusa. like I agree with you that Larusa will be a point of contention and kind of a lightning rod through the whole season. As we've seen with other teams, oftentimes it doesn't matter. Like oftentimes success just wins out, talent wins out and managers will make confusing decisions and everybody, you know, like the entire, all of October is griping about managers, which really is kind of one of the reasons why I prefer regular season baseball to October baseball. It's just like, I don't really like manager centric decisions. Like I prefer talking about how the players hash it out and, and, and putting the onus on them to perform. So that's a case where I think, you know, weird managing can be overcome. So, you know, when it comes to like, you know, what's going to be the stickiest of the these trouble spots, I think the offense could be hanging around for a while. As long as Jimenez is out, as long as you know Moncada's not coming back. Uh, if Roberts it has to go on the injured list, that's another one. Like there, there, there really isn't any help in Charlotte coming up. Um, yeah, I don't think the waiver wire is that fruitful right now. So that's a case where just like I could see it being pretty on and off or frustrating or hoping that you get some lefties lined up to 
give the White Sox some traction, some footing. Um, but uh, I think the starting pitching will improve. I think, you know, as Kopech and Cease get more leash or you know, and Giolito is able to shed his workload constraints, that's enough to carry a rotation, uh, Velasquez and Keuchel aside, um, especially when Lynn comes back. You know, if he comes back at you know, even like 80%, that helps. So I, I think the rotation is fine. Bullpen yep. should have better days in front of him, especially since, you know, Jose Ruiz looks pretty cool right now. But the offense, I, I think, could be a sticking point, especially since so much uh, of the improvement year over year and softening the blow of, say, like uh, a Jose Abreu decline and the Yasmani Grandal decline were kind of contingent on Jimenez and, and Moncada and Robert taking next steps. And if those guys aren't available, those steps can't be taken. Good point, Jim. Here's some important dates that I have because we are going to hear and there are probably people screaming at us. It's early. It's only 15 games. I have these three dates written down and I want to know where the White Sox are for these dates, Jim. First date, May 16th. That's after their seven game homestand against Cleveland and the New York Yankees. Where are they in the win loss record? They in their next 15 games, the White Sox have 10 home games scheduled. So far, they're not very good on the road. (laughs) This has been a terrible week for their road record. So if they're going to turn it around and be back to 500 mid-May, they're going to have to play really well at home, pick up some wins during these homestands. So I want to know if they're at 500 or better than 500 on May 16th. June 10th, this is the day after their home series against the Los Angeles Dodgers and ends the 38-game gauntlet that I mentioned which I believe is the toughest part of their schedule. And then 4th of July, they're coming home from San Francisco, which will be a tough series now, and starting a seven-game homestand against Minnesota and Detroit. We are within a month of the trade deadline. In past experiences, we know that it takes Rickon two to three weeks to work out a deal before the trade deadline. So what kind of team are the White Sox on July 4th so Rickon starts those negotiations through the All-Star break? and before the trade deadline on August 2nd. Those are the three key dates that I want to know where the White Sox are in the win-loss column because I get, I think it could heavily influence, especially some upcoming decision-making from the front office. Yeah, I generally adhere to uh, you know, breaking the season into quarters, just that I, whether it's because I'm lazy and I just like the simple math of dividing things by Many four. Many do that, though. Yeah, I, but I just, uh, you know, it, it makes sense to me just in, in the terms of like, you know, quarter season, you know, kind of feel out where you are, half the season, get an idea of what to shop for. And then, you know, the rest of the season more or less plays out uh, with the talent you have. And right at the 40 game mark is that break in that gauntlet you mentioned to where they get Kansas City for five games yeah. in the middle of that. Like they, you know, they go, they play a Cle- they play Boston, Cleveland, Yankees, Kansas City, Yankees, Boston. And but in the middle of his five games at Kansas City, and after that series is the 40th game of the season. So I think those five games in Kansas City are you know a pretty good indication of maybe where they are, especially depending on you know who's back, who's healthy, what have they had to uh, run out there with? Because like if they can't use those five games against Kansas City to regroup and take advantage of that oasis, you know not that you know Kansas City is going to be a pushover in Kaufman, but 
you know, just based on the schedule, you know, losing teams lose more than winning teams. And Kansas City projects to be a losing team. So, you know, the White Sox should be able to hand them losses, especially in stretches where their medal is being tested otherwise. So that's a, a, a fascinating series to me is that five-gamer right in the middle of May. Uh, just because uh, the White Sox kind of need those games, or they they might need those games. And even if they don't need those games, it should be one where they should, you know, it's the start of a road trip. Um, and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll have had, uh, you know, a week at home and, and a pretty favorable home schedule till then. So they shouldn't be run ragged too much, Uh schedule-wise, travel-wise, pitching plans-wise. So uh, if they, you know, if they scuffle through that and they and they end up limping to the 40-game mark, then I think that's, uh, you know, a case where you hope that there's somebody returning right around the corner because uh, that could be pretty grisly otherwise. But just the, and then you have to keep thinking of like, well, Washington Nationals were 19-31 and 31 and they won it all. Like in those are so few and far between that, you know, that's the reason why I can remember a team like the Nationals record mm-hmm. is because it's odd that it happened. Usually teams that start off that rough, like the Twins last year, kind of play. There are reasons why they start out that rough, and those reasons tend to be sticky. So uh, that's uh, that's a five-game series I think is more important than I realized, you know, or I guess more important than I knew uh, before this current skid. I think this upcoming series against Kansas City might be a must-win series, at least for the clubhouse morale and Jim and I are going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, but coming up next is our series preview as the Kansas city Royals visit the white Sox, And we'll answer your questions in PO socks. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. Before we preview the upcoming series against the Kansas City Royals, Jim got a chance to watch the Charlotte Knights as they visited Nashville, Tennessee, which means that Jim got a chance to take a look at Johnny Cueto, who was using one of his rehab, breaking off the rust type of starts. He'll have another one with Charlotte before he joins the White Sox. So, Jim, how did Johnny Cueto look? Uh, not... All that impressive. Uh, I think the question is whether this start, you know, the first start that he's had all year in a competitive environment since he had no spring training, whether it's just a spring training start or whether it's actually like him trying his best. 
we're at spring training and we're at being a case where he would talk to reporters in the middle of the game after he leaves and say like, well, I got my work in. Like he got his work in. Like he was able to, he threw all his pitches. He, you know, his fastball was started out 89 early. It was up to, you know, 91 and sitting 90, 91 uh, in the second and third innings. So the, the, the fastball velocity was gaining slash holding. He wasn't emptying it out 91 early and then fading out. So that was okay or in line with some previous years. Um, yeah, the, the one thing that I think was a unique factor in this is uh, minor league baseball is cracking down on pitch clock enforcement. So a guy that uses a lot of different timing um, tricks when it comes to his delivery had to work at a pretty fast clip. And so he did some quick pitching, but the triple shimmy, I didn't see any of that. He did some pauses and hesitation, but um, he might have been working faster than he normally does. So it's a case where you know, just it might be just a matter of getting the pitches. Um, but you know, if you're thinking like I'm making excuses or all these sound like excuses, and you're taking the more pessimistic angle then or cynical, whatever, what have you, like if this is the best he can do, like watching Chris Archer pitch for the Twins on Sunday kind of made me think like that's kind of what Cueto will look like. Like a lot of just off-speed pitches, kitchen sink type stuff, trying to locate sliders on both sides of the plate because the fastball isn't enough to get it done. You know, whole bag of tricks type thing. He he got hits, you know, a lot of line drives, you know, some soft ground balls early, but then as I saw in the second time, more line drives, some were broken bat line drives, but like the the swing paths were on time maybe not lining up where they want to in the barrel, but just in terms of where they were meeting the ball was enough to get the, the right kind of elevation. So that was a little bit, that, that gave me a little bit of pause. So he's going to start one more, at least one more game this week for Charlotte. Um, and, and Jeff Cohen, uh, he writes for future socks and, and socks machine should be there. And so, you know, we'll tell him to have his eyes on, on him just to see like, uh, is the contact still that loud? Is the fastball velocity still topping out at 91? He only got three swings and misses on 53 pitches. So that, that's why I'm thinking like, this could be just, he could be fodder. He could be just like, well, let's hope he's better than Vince Velasquez for a month. And then that's all we need from him. Anything else is gravy. Uh, but I think we're going to need at least two starts to understand like whether he's still building or not. Because if this is like the first step and he still has like another level that his stuff can reach, then this was fine. Then, then this was just a good, you know, 53 pitches of getting work in in a competitive environment. But if this is what we have to expect him to compete with at the major league level, I don't see it ending well. Great. Yeah. Uh, we'll see how things go in Charlotte. A glowing report for Johnny Cueto. So for those that were optimistic about Cueto, uh, maybe just reserve judgment until we see a little bit more from him when he makes his next start for the Charlotte Knights in Charlotte. And as Jim mentioned, Jeff Cohen will be there and uh, we'll get his uh, view and he'll get a chance to maybe talk to Cueto or at least with Knights manager Wes Helms after the game about Cueto's next appearance. All right, the White Sox continue to play games, even though we spent a lot of time venting about their terrible week and their seven-game losing streak. The Kansas City Royals come into town, and they are 5-9. and nine. They have lost their last four games. Their expected win-loss record is 4-10, and 10, so they're overachieving by a game. Your pitching problems for this series, starting on Tuesday night, 6-10 p.m. Central Time. First pitch should be around 
50 degrees, partly cloudy. There is no precipitation in the forecast for this series. Daniel Lynch, a lefty, Woo. is making the start against Dallas Keuchel. So there's some good news, bad news for Tuesday. The White Sox offense will face a left-handed starter, but Dallas Keuchel is on the mound as he looks to redeem himself after his poor performance in Cleveland. Wednesday night, 6.10 p.m. Central Time, first pitch is going to be around 38 degrees as a cold front moves in. It's going to be very cold Wednesday night. Zach Ranke is making the start for the Royals against Dylan Cease. Thursday afternoon at 1.10 p.m. Central Time, the forecast is looking at 47 degrees and cloudy. It's Brad Keller against Michael Kopech. All right, Jim, those are the pitching probables. And as I laid out, the Royals are currently 5-9, and nine, their last place in the American League Central. They're a half game behind the Chicago White Sox and Detroit Tigers. They have lost four games in a row. We talked about the Royals preseason as a team of intrigue that could be really annoying for the White Sox as you can buy into future shares of the Kansas City Royals knowing that this is a team up and coming. So far in 2022, from what you have seen from the Royals, what makes them interesting to you? Well, I think what makes them interesting is not quite there yet. I mean, Bobby Witt Jr., he's certainly interesting and worth watching basically every at-bat as he goes. Mm-hmm. But right now, I think they're still working through like the remainder of like the Carlos Santana idea of like trying to build a an outside chance of contending because they had they had, you know, nothing else really going on and could spend the money. Um, but you know, he's still working through some stuff. I think they, you know, they have like, um, uh, you know, a wave of prospects in Omaha that I think will change the lineup considerably. And, you know, we'll add, like I would say probably three hitters worth watching every day if you're a Royals fan. But I think right now their lineup is incomplete and their pitching staff has moments, but it also has some gaps. And I've seen a lot of complaints about pitching coach Cal Eldred uh, from Royals fans. Um, <laughs> old friend. So, yeah, old friend. I, I was at the game where his elbow broke. It was uh, it was a bad scene back in 2000. Uh, speaking of costly injuries. But right now, yeah, I think this is a good time to catch them because they just, yeah, they, they aren't at their... I don't think they're at their, their their widest variable status yet to where they could have some series where they're shut down because they're too young and impetuous at the plate. They're, they're going to be loud and talented tunes for some series, and I don't think they're quite there yet. Zach Greinke, uh I heard that he was having trouble missing bats. I didn't realize only two strikeouts in 16 innings. Yeah. Yep. That's like dead ball era. So that's a case where like the... Uh, I mean, it might be on dead ball era now, but this is a case where like, you know, we're, we're watching the degree of difficulty for command-oriented right-handed hitter uh, pitchers keep dropping for the White Sox. We, we see them go from like Bieber and uh, Tristan McKenzie and, and, and whatnot to uh, Zach Greinke or uh, to Bailey Ober. He can't hit Ober because his, you know, he can throw his breaking ball in too many weird counts. Here comes Zach Greinke who doesn't miss bats regardless. What are you going to do with him? And, you know, right now he's doing a decent job of, you know, being a crafty righty at the end of his career. Like he really hasn't been damaged too much, given up a lot of hits, but, you know, nothing. He's, he's kept the ball in the park, no homers yet. So he's not striking anybody out, but he's not walking anybody and not giving up homers. So it's it's hard to maybe string together the requisite amount of hits against a guy who knows what he's doing. But uh, this is a case where the White Sox, you know, shouldn't, be expecting to strike out. So what can they do with their contact in a big outfield? You know, and 
uh, if they can't put the ball over the fence, can they have louder contact that gets down in other places? It's uh, the degree of difficulty keeps dropping. And I just want to see the White Sox be able to clear the bar somewhere with, with just a really good night of, uh, you know, like say six runs would be nice. A crooked number would be nice. That's, that's what I, uh, that's what I'm having in mind here. Against Granky. It could be Granky. It could be Keller. Like, you know, Keller's having a better start than Granky when it comes to peripherals. But like at some point, uh, you can't look at the pitchers and say, well, he's had a good start. And like, you know, Granky doesn't miss bats. So I would like to see them do something against Granky. Yeah. If they don't hit Granky, if they don't generate offense against Brad Keller, which they've had tremendous success, past success against Brad Keller, then that offensive kryptonite is a lot stronger than what we thought. As we discussed earlier in the show, offensively for Kansas city, the guys that are doing well, Salvador Perez, he's got five home runs this season. He's slugging 596 as that's carrying his OPS. He's got a 900 OPS. Andrew Benatendi is off to a good start for the Royals. He's hitting 388 with a 434 on base percentage, slugging 490. So Benatendi's off to a strong start. The hitters that are not off to a strong start, and this is surprising. Whit Merrifield is eight for 59 hitting. He's only got two extra base hits, just two doubles. He has no home runs. So his slash line is 136 batting average, 164 on base percentage. It's like in 169. Let's keep that going through this series. And uh, Mondesi is six for 48 for Kansas City. He's got 20 strikeouts already this season. He does have five stolen bases. He's tied with Luis Robert for the lead in the American League, but he's batting 125 with a 176 on base percentage, and he's slugging 125, all singles for his six hits. But if he does get on base, he's running. So don't let him get on base, White Sox pitchers. So the Kansas City Royals, hodgepodge right now as far as performances. Some guys are doing well. Some other veterans are clearly not doing well. And again, I, as I mentioned, for the psyche and the clubhouse morale gem, I view this as a must-win series because if we have Sox Machine Live on Thursday and they lose this series against the Royals, I don't know how White Sox fans are going to have a lot of enthusiasm for the upcoming weekend series as the Angels come into town. And there's a lot more talent with the Angels than there is with the Royals. Unless that enthusiasm is, you know, watching Shohei Otani and Mike Trout. <laughs> Just beat <Yeah>. your ass. <laughs> that's, that's some 2017 through 2019 White Sox watching. <laughs> yep. But yes, we'll recap this series on Sox Machine Live this upcoming Thursday. Again, the weather looks to be clear. For this series, so there should be no delays. And of course, we'll have all the game recaps and such on SoxMachine.com and our quick analysis, which you can follow us on Twitter at SoxMachine. And you can follow me on Twitter at SoxMachine underscore Josh. All right, this show's already running long, and you guys had some questions. So let's answer them next in PO Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. 
Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our Patreon supporters for Socks Machine, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where our Patreon supporters submitted their questions to us on patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And if you'd like to you have the opportunity to pose us a question or topic that you'd like us to tackle in a future episode of the Socks Machine podcast, you can be a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. All right, Jim, first Patreon question that we got comes from Rob and Rob wrote to us, is it time for White Sox fans to crack open each other's skulls and feast on the goo inside? Yes. Yes, I would say that. (laughs) Oh, well, speaking of wanting to crack each other's skulls open, let's get to Terrence's question. Terrence (laughs) asked us, what's your angst level with Liam Hendricks and Aaron Bummer now? Well, Bummer we've talked about is like his... um you know, what's ailing him, what's currently uh, you know, plaguing his command does seem to be persistent and uh, is hanging around. So it's going to take a while, I think, to gain faith in him, especially like say that, you know, the, the walk to the ninth hitter in front of By- Byron Buck's nonsensical walk. Um, those, I think that that's the biggest issue. I think just taking a step back and, 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 not talking or focusing so much on mechanics or release point or pitch mix is just like the nonsense of like the, the nonsensical nature of his walks and just how random they are, how non-competitive they are. And in this case, like a non-competitive walk to a third catcher who does uh, not have a hit this season and is right in front of Buxton. Uh, yeah, not, not what you want. And, and sure enough, uh, Hendricks did the same thing. Uh, Hendricks, I think I'm a little bit lower on the other, I guess the other thing I want to talk about with Hendricks though, is that, you know, not only did he pitch to Buxton, but apparently he had back tightness during, like he had, he tried to catch, uh, Yasmani Grandal's throw it like, you know, it was a little bit of a low and wide throw and it wasn't a place he anticipated. So he had to like reach suddenly to stab to grab it. And he kind of winced and like, yeah, after the game, Larusa seemed to say, in a matter of at least it was presented in text, I hadn't heard it, uh, you know, to, to understand the tone. But it seemed like he said, like in a matter of fact way, uh, that he was dealing back tightness, uh, you know, and he's, he'll be treated after the game. She's like, well, if he wasn't at 100 percent. You know, one, why is he out there? Two, why is he out there going after Buxton on a three-one count? So, I think with Hendricks, I think that's more of a matter of, yeah, I, I still pin that on Larusa more than Hendricks, but. It is something to watch going forward to see if like this back injury is the latest uh, little dumb injury that ends up having too significant of ramifications for the way the Sox are built. Well, Terrence, thank you so much for your question. I already mentioned that the Super Bullpen is not carrying their weight at the beginning of the show. So let's get to Michael's question. And Michael wrote to us last season, the White Sox were able to weather the storm of injuries with hot streaks from Yuri Mercedes and Brian Goodwin and so on. Is there anything that could be done in 2022 to do the same outside of just simply getting healthy and playing better? Well, I've kind of gotten my wish in this regard just because I, I talked about, I talked about Lawrence Holmes. I I mentioned a couple times in the podcast too, saying that I wish there were a way, or I'd be fascinated to know if there was a way to simulate the season you know, not just like with out of the park baseball or something like that, but you know, just actual on field alternate universe scenario where your mean Mercedes doesn't have the first five weeks he has 
and solves the DH problem and fills in for the absence of Eloy Jimenez while buying time for Andrew Vaughn to get his feet wet against Major League Pitching. Like, what would that season look like if Mercedes never happened? Would the White Sox be able to uh, coast? Would they be, you know, still winning the Central, but with 86 games rather than 90, uh, you know, 90 plus and, and, and needing to wait until like the last week or two of the season to clinch and it being a real uh, stretch run for them? Or, you know, would it just be a matter of, you know, would uh, the Twins be cursed anyway? And would the Cleveland be undercapitalized? And would the White Sox still be able to prevail? Like that was... You know, watching how uh, Mercedes bought the time for the White Sox, shortened the season to where they only had to cover three months before Jimenez came back with, you know, Brian Goodwin and Jake Lamb and Gavin Sheets and Jake Berger and Adam Engel getting these random two-week uh, hot stretches they're basically skipping to, you know, trying to cross like the lava pit. <laughs> like they had these little bit of, uh, you know, safe, safe haven for two weeks before they started sinking and they had another place to jump to. Right now, we're seeing what the offense looks like without that kind of uh, burst of energy that Mercedes provided, and it is pretty dire right now. And watching Charlotte a few times over this last week in person, nobody is coming to help. Uh, like, right now, the best prospect position player-wise is Carlos Perez, but he's a catcher, um, and his strength right now is not striking out. Like, he's not really an impact bat. He's more of a... If Grandal were to go down, I think he'd be a decent third catcher option to have with Reese McGuire, righty-lefty combination. That could be better than you think. But it's not going to be somebody who transforms an offense. He hasn't struck out this year in AAA, which is uh, you know its own kind of fascinating, but it's not transformative hmm. uh, for an offense the way like Mercedes was and the way you know Gavin Sheets helped uh, for stretches and Jake Berger and so forth. So right now, the White Sox kind of have to dance with who they brought. And... There, there are some guys having moments. There are some, you know, some players you hope can get healthier. Or in the case of Pollock, is healthier but needs to knock the rust off. And next week they might look a lot better. But uh, if they don't, there's really no help. So, uh, you know, treasure that your mean Mercedes month in the sun uh, while, while this is going on. Uh, is the Urminator burger still available? It's still on the menu. I don't know if they make it. And I'm still waiting for Freddy's on 31st to make a Jake Berger burger. But looking at how poorly Jake Berger is hitting right-handed pitching, I don't know how much longer he's going to be with the White Sox, especially if Yohan Makata is going to be joining the team soon. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, if we can get a Yerminator burger, I would say get one and save for those times. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Hugh, and Hugh's got a hypothetical question for us. And he wrote to us, Tony La Russa suddenly announces his retirement tomorrow. White Sox ownership and management admit they are at a loss, and they are leaving the designation of Tony La Russa's successor to the good people at Sox Machine. So, who would be the manager? Well, I would first ask Rick Hahn if he had like a uh, case of Stockholm syndrome and just like did not know, like, you know, did not trust his ability to conduct an honest to goodness manager search. We still don't know what that looks like. That's the nuts thing about the whole Kenny Williams, Rick Hahn tenure, especially after Ozzie Gaines. We still don't know what it looks like for the White Sox to conduct an uh, honest to goodness external managerial search, a leadership search. Uh, the last one they had was cut out from under them. The previously they hired uh, 
Robin Ventura off like a high school guidance counselor personality quiz. And then they hired uh, Rick Renteria as basically just an in-house, you know, without, without really conducting interviews. They just, you know, brought the next guy up, even though Renteria was actually qualified for that job. Like it was, it was, that was ended up being a fine hire for a rebuilding team. But just, you know, they, they haven't actually had one. So first I would go over to Rick Hahn and say like, we're not going to cut the legs out from under you this time. I promise. Please go with, you're, go with what you're going to go with before LaRusso was uh, thrust upon you. And then if he still admits, like, I still have nothing. Uh, I would say like, uh, I have two ideas and, and none are like, you know, neither are based on anything. And, and uh, just when it comes to just where I would like to see them go, one is, you know, Matt Quattraro, uh, with the, uh, Rays, like he's, he's made some inroads with some interviews and hasn't quite gotten the job, uh, might've, you know, maybe had some inroads to Houston had they not needed Dusty Baker during that specific point of their, uh, crisis. Um, I think he was a, you know, considered for that job. Um, then they went with Dusty's veteran gravitas for team post scandal, uh, but he's been around like, you know, he's, he's been an instrumental part of the race success. It'd be interesting to see what he does, um, you know, knowing what he knows and that kind of creative transactional problem solving with lineups and rosters and pitching staff construction, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I don't really know anything about his leadership style or temperament or his ability to inspire, but just based on like the source of, uh, you know, where good bench coaches turn into managers. That's one place I would look. Uh, the other one is, you know, if you're looking for somebody who's public facing, uh, and you know, you hear him a, a lot, you know, speaking directly to people would be Eduardo Perez, uh, who I've, hmm. uh, you know, I've liked hearing him talk. You know, he obviously comes from, you know, he's got a wealth of baseball knowledge, just, you know, given that he grew up around the game and has been in a lot of different organizations and in a lot of different roles, um, has had to deal, you know, he's, he's been the voice of the Nerdcast baseball broadcast and has had to be conversant in that kind of stuff and, and, and open-minded and not, uh, you know, like I appreciated that when he was on those broadcasts with Jason Benetti and Mike Petriello, that he did not, you know, assume the mantle of, well, I'm the jock who has to say why this is wrong or why to say like, well, you know, this is misleading or poke fun at the, uh, you know, non-players for being nerds. Like, you know, he was just naturally conversant in those things and would sometimes use, you know, you talk about exit velocity or launch angle or talk about, you know, hitting mechanics as it applied to that. Like he was very good at supplementing that with on-field experience. Um, I also remember I went to spring training when the White Sox were in Tucson and, and uh, Perez was at the end of his career and, and trying to see if he could get a job uh, with the White Sox. But just seeing him as a non-roster guy, he, well, one, he's got a booming voice. Um, like you could hear him across fields. And it doesn't sound like he's talking, he's not, he's shouting. It's just, uh, or even like, you know, broadcasting. It just, it sounds like one of those voices that the Doppler effect does not apply to. And <laughs> I'm very jealous of those voices because my voice uh, carries the same frequency as fluorescent lighting. So if I'm more than five feet away from you, I just start mm, 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 like just, it, it, it meshes in with white noise. I think I become very pleasant to sleep to, but I think it's just, I'm jealous of people who can project naturally without getting tired or their voices cracking within 10 minutes. So uh, that, that, that got my attention. It's like, wow, he's really, you know, he's involved for a non-roster guy and, and in the mix. And he's, he's had some experience with managing, uh, you know, some uh, winter ball teams and being involved in that regard. And his, his skill set and his profile kind of reminds me a little bit of Alex Cora. 
um, as somebody who kind of had his feet in the broadcasting world, feet in you know, managing short season teams, you know, not really a whole lot of experience with one organization in a non-playing role, but has had uh, a, a broad array of experiences elsewhere. So I'd be curious to see where he goes uh, and, and follow what he does. Because I think, you know, just seeing his personality, it does seem like he has the kind of uh, ability to connect with people. Uh, when it comes to like building a staff, that's something where I don't know if you don't have... If you don't have like the kind of uh, experience, you know, coming up through the minors or managing on teams, staffs and understanding like what goes into a bench coach job or what goes into a third base coach job or what I want from my uh, bullpen catcher, you know, that, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, do you know how to build that or do you have to lean on people or, you know, and that's the case like with Robin Matura. I think that's one of the cases where his inexperience showed was building a staff. Like he had Mark Parent as bench coach, and it seemed like he was connect. They were connected because they had the same agent. It wasn't anything that uh, you know Ventura knew from his uh, ranks coming up, and you know Parent turned out to be like basically uh, a non-entity in that role as somebody you would hope would be able to shepherd a complete uh, you know greenhorn that Ventura was. So if Perez is in the same way, I think that'd be my lone reservation is just does he know how to build out a staff with what he's been able to do so far in the game, but. I'm very, uh, you know, if he turned out to be a great manager and if he turned out to be like an instant success and everybody loved him, uh, you know, fan base and media alike, I would not be surprised. Hmm. My pick would be Joe Espada, the current bench coach of the Houston Astros, who is what I want the White Sox to hire before the whole Tony the Rusa thing happened. And he's still the bench coach and now he's learning from Dusty Baker. So if you can't beat him, hire him, right? That's yeah. how business works today. So that would be my pick, Hugh. But Hugh, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. Like I mentioned before, if you would like to ask a question or post a topic for a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, you could do so by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, where our Patreon supporters, they get more. They get exclusive content like our 2022 Major League Baseball draft reports that are posted weekly or the opportunity to post P.O. Sox questions. They also get ad-free versions of both the podcast and the website, and they get the first opportunity to acquire our new Sox Machine swag. Monthly plans start at just $2 a month, and you can save with an annual subscription. And if you're interested and you want more, go to patreon.com slash Machine to sign up today. That will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine. Follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Sox Machine. You can also listen to us in the Lawrence Holmes Show weekly on Fridays at 1 p.m. Central Time on 670 The Score in Chicago. And I hope the White Sox win because it's supposed to be my turn and I do not want to get yelled at by Lawrence Holmes. So let's have a good week, White Sox. And the Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.